please do grab a seat. Let me add my welcome on to John's. It's great uh, to be with you this evening, looking again at One Kings. One Kings is a series where, uh, one of our series here at St. Peter's. It's been a wee while since we last uh, spent some time in it. And good news, we're not just doing chapter 8 tonight. We're doing chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 tonight. Hey, what a feast we have this evening. Just to get our heads back into the book, to get us thinking again what it's all about. Well, let me remind us, 1 Kings is essentially a, a historical account. It's an account of the rise and then the fall of Israel's kings. And it starts off with the great King Solomon. We'll see tonight the pinnacle of his reign. And next week we're going to see his downfall. And then in weeks to come we see years and years of rebellion of Israel's kings, which eventually resulted in their removal from the land and a small remnant remaining. See, 1 Kings is a book all about why God allowed that to happen. It's not just a history book, though. It's more like a sermon from history, because Israel, they weren't just any nation. They were God's chosen people. The people he had given particular promises to. Promises that he would bless them and bring his king to them and he would reign forever. So as we read 1 Kings, the author is reminding the readers, he's reminding us that there was more to come. There was more to come than what we read of in the book. Now as we get our heads back into it, let me remind us of the big theme of the book, the, the melodic line, if you want, that runs through it. And it's this, as we see on the screen. If we, as God's people, are to experience God's blessing, we need to follow a king who will perfectly follow God's word. That's the, the big thing we see in the book. And in particular, with Solomon at the start, Solomon's a bit like uh, a blueprint, He's a, a picture, a drawing of something that was to come. Perhaps like me, you, you get the train a lot in Dundee, and in the middle of the station, there's a model of what the waterfront's supposed to look like. That's about like Solomon. You can see a picture of what the king's like. But you can't see the details. You can't really make out the color of it. You can't see everything there. He's a blueprint of King Jesus to come. So that means that the great successes, the achievements, the wisdom of Solomon, everything we see in the first 10 chapters of the book, they're, they're a paradigm, a model of what God's king should be like. This great spiritual ruler we need to help us, to guide us, to save us. But our author also wants to make something clear in these chapters. That Solomon was not the finished article. He's dropped little hints of that through the opening chapters and we'll reflect more on that next week. See, Solomon's a good king, but he's a flawed king. And in chapters 5 to 8, we're introduced to the greatest achievement of King Solomon. You could, you could argue, actually, it's the, the highest point of the Old Testament, what we read in chapter 8. It's the most important thing, the most significant thing he ever did was the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
Let me show you a few, a few slides if Louise can flick those on. Here's just a diagram for us to get our heads around what chapters 5 to 7 are all about. Just want to include this to see the scale of the picture. Look at the wee priest there at the top compared to the furnace. And look at the decoration inside the temple as well, how decorative it is. If we go on to the next slide again, Louise. Look at the colour, all the gold there as well. That's what chapters 5, 6 and 7 are all about. All about the construction of this temple, all its decorations. And all about Solomon's temple as well. See, 1 Kings gives so much airtime to this. More airtime to anything else, you could say. Because the construction of the temple is so, so significant in the Old Testament. See, the promises of God and the failure of Israel's kings are all tied to this building. Now, we're going to start getting our heads into 1 Kings 8, don't worry. As we come to reflect on the chapter, here's what's happened. Solomon's finished building the temple. In the start of the chapter we read, he's gathered all the leaders and the people of Israel together for its grand opening. So picture in your mind this great structure up up on the law in Dundee up on the hill for everyone to see hundreds of thousands of people from all over Scotland coming to witness this momentous occasion of opening and we read at the temple the priests have brought in the ark of the covenant the ark contained the ten commandments the symbol of God's presence and as soon as the ark enters the great cloud of God's glory fills the temple and Solomon stands to speak to the people. That's what we see up to verse 11 of chapter 8. Now we've read the passage. We've had a bit of a recap. Let me pray. Ask God for help as we carry on. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the King of Kings. You are our majesty. Help us tonight as we look at your word to understand something more about you, more about your kingship. Help us, help our hearts to delight in you. Incline our hearts to your word this evening, we ask, and not to anything else in this world. Open our eyes to see wonderful things as we look at your word. Unite our hearts together in reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts, we ask. Satisfy them in your steadfast love. Pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus, with great confidence before our Father in heaven. Amen. One more slide for us this evening. As we can see on the screen uh, behind me, this is where we're going this evening. This is our roadmap for tonight, if you will. Help us see what's going on in the chapter. And if you're a note taker, feel free to jot these down. As you see, we've done our overview of the first bit, Psalms Construction. So what I want us to do is to focus on why is the temple so significant? I know of glossed over in one sense, but why did the author spend chapter upon chapter upon chapter detailing its construction and dedication? And I also want us to look at this evening what the temple tells us about God. And if you're here tonight and you aren't a Christian, 
I'm really glad that you are here. And I want you to think as you go through this evening. Is the Jesus I think of the Jesus I'm reading about tonight? Keep that question in your head as you go through. Is the Jesus I think of the Jesus I'm questioning, the Jesus I'm rejecting, the Jesus we're reading of? I'd love to hear your thoughts afterwards at the door. So first off, let's start digging some more into 1 Kings 8. And here's the question. Why is the temple so significant? Answer. Because the temple is a greater realization of God's promise to dwell with his people. See, here in 1 Kings 8, what we see is we see God moving in to be with his people. That's why it's such a great high point when the cloud of glory comes down. God is coming to dwell amongst his people in his house. But this isn't the first time it's happened though, is it? Think way, way back to the beginning of the Bible. Let's see how this runs through the Old Testament. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. Remember the great creator God walking amongst his creation. Walking with Adam in the Garden of Eden. That was God's desire to enjoy his creation with humanity. Of course, so much has happened in the Bible between those those opening few pages at the start and where we are now because of the fall, because of their sin. And we see because of Adam's sin, Adam and Eve, they are forced in the Garden of Eden. That place where the creator God made himself especially known. But it doesn't end there, does it? God goes on to create another sort of Eden. Another place where he can meet with his people. Another sanctuary. That's literally how God describes a tabernacle. In Genesis 25, verse 8 says, Then let them make a sanctuary for, for me, and I will dwell among them. Here he's not talking about making a new garden. But it's a tent furnished inside to look a bit like a garden. And then the end of the Exodus, we have the great climax there. God coming down again to be with his people. It's like the Garden of Eden, but it's not quite as good. And then from then on, we have chapters and chapters from the middle of Exodus to the middle of Numbers. It's all related to the tabernacle. But what we have something here in 1 Kings 8, it's something more than that. Something more permanent. Something more certain God here is moving in with his people. And that's amazing. See, what we see with the temple is that God is doing in the fallen world exactly what he intended to do in Eden. He will meet with his people. And he will do it in spite of sin. That's why the sacrificial system was there. He's going to meet them in one place now. So now the nations will know exactly where to look to see the living God. Look to the people of God. Look to the city of God, Jerusalem. Look to the house of God. And there you will find the living God. See, the temple, it's all about God meeting with us 
and us meeting with God. That's why it's so significant. But the thing is, though, temple's a big deal, but it was never the end. Like Solomon, it was a picture, it was a blueprint, a model of something greater to come. Perhaps think back to our our summer series with Ezekiel. This temple that Solomon built, gone, smashed. And at the end of that book, a picture of a new garden temple and the recreation to come. See, Solomon's temple, it was never the end. It doesn't bring about the great promises of God, but it does teach us something. And it teaches us about Jesus. So that's what Jesus went on to claim about himself, wasn't it? In John chapter, John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days he would raise it from the ground. So that means to learn about the temple is to learn about Jesus. Like Solomon, the temple was a blueprint, a picture of something better to come. So that means when we look at the temple tonight, we have one big whopping teaching aid all about Jesus. Now, let's see what this temple signifies then about God in Solomon's prayer. See, Solomon prays about a temple. It signifies three things. God's faithfulness, God's grace, and God's mission. Let's look at these in turn. God's faithfulness. He will always keep his promises. I wonder if when Kirstein was reading this, you notice when all this was taking place and go, well, yes, Craig, of course I did. It was at the feast in the month of Ethanum, which is the seventh month, of course. Well, why, why bother mentioning this? Well, because the feast here is almost certainly the feast of tabernacles. What was that? Well, the people remembered the desert wanderings. They remembered their total dependence on God, their total dependence on his word. That's the setting here of everything remembering reliance on the word of God and where God gave that word. And here, that's the very first thing Solomon thanks God for in verses 23 to 24. Let me read that for us again. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, You've kept your promise to your servant David, my father, with your mouth. You've promised and with your hand you have fulfilled as it is today. See, Solomon's praising God because he is faithful to his word. See, for the Israelites, the temple, it was one huge, great sign that God has kept his promise. If they ever need a reminder what God was like, look at the temple. See, the whole thing for them is one big covenant confidence booster. It was to reassure them that God was faithful to his word. Right from the heart of the Mosaic covenant, the, the Ten Commandments, and the heart of, this, of the temple, to the structure itself. Let's zoom in again on what Solomon prays. Have a look at verses 25 to 26. Now, Lord, God of Israel... Keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me in the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, 
Let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. Now notice the logic here saying, you've been true to what you promised David. There's a son of David on the throne, son of David building the temple of the Lord. Now Lord, let your faithfulness also govern the future. In other words, because of how you've acted in the past, may your faithfulness remain in the future. Now, why can Solomon say this? Why does Solomon dare to say this? Well, because he recognizes who God is. He recognizes the character of God. He recognizes what the author of Hebrews would later say. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God's faithfulness in the past is the very reason we can have any confidence in the future That was the same for Solomon, and that's the exact same for us as well, because this book is our history as well. Just look at what else he prays in verse 56 in this section. Halfway through, actually etch this on your mind. Not one word has failed of all the good promises you gave through your servant Moses. Not one word, not one word has ever failed from God's promises. You can trust him. He has never failed you. Ever. Not one word has failed of all of your promises. That is a bold thing, isn't it? When your mum gets cancer, when you, you lose your job, when your spouse gets dementia and no longer recognises you or at the death of your child, not one word has failed of all his good promises to us. Now, we don't have time to look into that fully this evening. (laughs) It's amazing that David did this morning, though, isn't it? So if you weren't here this evening, look at that sermon from this morning when it goes online. Because it's true. That's the confidence it gives us in those times. Because he's there with us amongst the suffering. He's there with us amongst the pain and confusion. He is faithful to his promise. He'll see us through life. He'll see us through death itself. Not one word has failed of all his good promises to us. We can trust him. He is faithful. We trust him because he's there with us, just like he was with his people here, and even more so for us. See, God has said that he shall be with his people that he shall live with his people. And that's exactly what we see at the start of the chapter in verse 11. But it's just a picture of what was to come with Jesus. Because he is the one who will truly be with his people. He will truly bring God to his people and the people to God. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive. He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus did it fully. He came, he dwelt amongst his people. He tabernacled amongst them. He came, he truly is God with us. And in Jesus are all the promises of God fulfilled. Remember the wise King Solomon, he's just a a blueprint. He's a picture of the king who will bring us into the presence of God. And how much more true is that of Jesus? Because Jesus, he is the true king. He is the temple. He is the presence of God. He is the word become flesh. He is all these things, the picture of Solomon and temple together in one. And today he has left us his spirit. He has given us his Holy Spirit. So we are now always in the presence of God. We read in Ephesians 1 that in Jesus, when we believe in him, we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. The deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. What does that mean? What means that if you want certainty that God keeps his promises today, you don't look at the structure, you look at the stable. It's not about the bricks of a temple, it's about that baby in the manger. It means we don't put our confidence in vast rooms of a building. We put our confidence in the empty tomb because Jesus is more real than the temple. We look at Jesus and we remember God's faithfulness because he always keeps his promise. Because of God's faithfulness in the past, we can have confidence in the future. Solomon prays, he remembers the temple signifies God's faithfulness and also God's grace. Look how he goes on in verse 27 of chapter 8. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Sometimes I think when we when we worship God, we, we think a lot about what God has done. And that is good. And that is right for us to do so. We also need to remember and worship God just because of, of who he is. And the latter, that's what Solomon's doing here. He can't, he can't quite grasp how this works. How can the great God of the universe somehow come and dwell in this room and yet he knows it's true how do these things work together he's sort of saying god you're so vast so great not even heaven can contain you so this temple definitely can't and yet there is something special here about this temple for you've said that you will dwell here you are the god who is up there and yet you are the god who is down here Yet, despite me not fully understanding all of this, when we come here, when we come to pray here, look what he says at the end of verse 30. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. See, we, can't, 
we can't really, we just can't, we can't grasp God fully. And yet by his grace, we, we know him, we hear him speak to us as we read the Bible, we speak back to him in prayer. We don't really know how that works. And yet we do know enough that he will listen to us, that he will forgive us. See, if you were to, to read through verses 31 to 53, that's a section uh, we didn't have time to read this evening. What we find here is divine blessings and curses related to the covenant. Basically, Solomon outworking this principle in different situations. And throughout this section, there's this repeated phrase, then hear from heaven, as nearly either variants of, then hear from heaven and forgive their sin, or hear from heaven and rescue from the sinner. So he looked at the temple and it was a reminder for the Israelites that God was always willing to listen. He was always willing to forgive. That's why Solomon keeps mentioning it over and over again in his prayer. See, they were certain that God would listen to them, certain that God would forgive them, and yet we can have even greater certainty that God hears us, that he will forgive us. Think of it like this. There was a there's a story about President John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office, and he was meeting with some, some VIPs, some, some world leaders at the time, and strict instruction was given to the White House staff that no one could come into this meeting. No one was possibly allowed to disturb this really important meeting under any circumstance. But at a crucial point in these talks and negotiations, the door suddenly flies open. Everyone looks around. How, how dare somebody come in? How dare somebody defy the president's orders? And in marches a little boy. And he jumps on the president's knee. It was John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the president. He did what no one else was able to do. And he did it with no hesitation. Because he had privileged access to the father. And in Christ, through trusting in him, we are able to do the same thing with God most high. Because Jesus has come, he has paid the price of our sin, he has made it possible for us to have unhindered access to God the Father in heaven. Hebrews 4.16 is, I think, one of the sweetest verses in the Bible. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What does it mean practically? It means that when you feel the shame of your sin, it means that when you're, you're struggling to love your spouse and you're getting frustrated, wanting to do better, it means when your tongue spoke that gossip again or you put somebody down. It means when you, when you clicked on that website again, you shouldn't have. Whatever it is that we have done. It means that we can cry to God. That he will hear us. Just as Solomon prays, he remembers the temple signifies God's grace. That he will always listen and forgive. We look at Jesus, 
and know that God will always listen and forgiveness, no matter how many times we've messed up. It means that, I don't really get this, for quite a long time, Robert Murray McShane, first minister here, a lot of people uh, have heard about him, written books. I mean, he's got this saying that says, for every time you look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. That's sort of what we mean here, that when we feel the weight of our sin, take a look at yourself, but take 10 looks at Christ, the one who hears us, the one who forgives us. So in your time of need, don't, don't run from God. In your time of need, come to God so that you may receive mercy and grace. See, God's faithfulness in the temple, God's grace. There's also a missional element to it all. Let me read verses 41 to 43 of the chapter. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hands and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. I think this uh, section is tied to the Queen of Sheba. We'll see next week. But notice here the assumption that with this temple, the nations will hear about God. Because the temple, it's, it's a reminder of God's mission to the nations. Look towards the end of Solomon's uh, benediction from verse 54. What we see in his prayer here it's a summary of everything we've looked at so far this evening but notice the climax in verse 60 so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other see the, the purpose of the temple as I said is to bring God to us and us to God but it's also to bring people in to bring people of the earth that they may know that the Lord is God. And we see this, this picture picked up right into the New Testament as well. Think of the scene in Mark's gospel when Jesus goes to the temple and he is absolutely raging. And in chapter 11 verse 17, we read this, I'll read it for us. And, has, and as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer? For all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, and Jesus rebukes those at the temple because Israel become insular. They in the temple are supposed to draw the world in, and they do it uh, a little bit. I guess you read in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, there's people from all nations there. Acts very quickly becomes about reaching the nations through church planting. See, this evening, if you're a Christian, not only can you be sure of God's promises, not only can you approach the throne of grace, be a part of God's mission to the world. For now the church is the temple of God. 
The Spirit of God once distant, unapproachable in the temple through Christ is now in us. If you're part of a fellowship group, you, you'd have read this in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 where it says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's, it's temple language, being built into a temple. And Peter goes on in verse 9 says, the church is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession so that you may declare. Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what the church is supposed to do today. Same as the temple, but fully realized. I'm also part of our, uh, our, our church plant through in, in Charleston. One of my prayers for, for Charleston is from, is from Habakkuk, where I pray that knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover that scheme as the waters cover the sea. And how will that happen? How will that prayer be fulfilled in Charleston, in Dundee, in Scotland, in, in the nations? Well, the same way it did with the temple on Solomon's Day. But people no longer go to a place for that to happen. Instead, they go to a people. For the church is now the temple of God. The church is now the household of God. The church is now the dwelling place of God. And people who has placed his name in baptism. See, the church is now the place where God meets people and people meet God. Don't mishear me. I don't mean the church isn't an institution, but rather the church as the people. It's what the temple is pointing towards. It's now the place where God meets people and people meet God. See, the temple, it's always been about God's mission to the nations. It wasn't Solomon's day, and it's true in us today as we seek to plant churches across the globe. See, God's mission to the nations, that's where, that's where it's all going. That's where we're heading towards in Revelation. It's how the Bible ends. People from every tribe and tongue praising the name of Jesus, where God will dwell with his people and his people with him. It's like Eden, but it's so much better. There's a lot in Solomon's prayer here, isn't there? How do we summarize what we've seen? God is faithful. He's not forgotten his promises. He will always fulfill them. God is is gracious to us. He'll hear us and forgive us. His mercy is new every day, which is good because our sin is fresh every morning. God is on a mission through his church. He is going to save people from every nation, tribe, tongue, social class. All of this is good news of great joy. It's good news of great joy. And that's a phrase you know, isn't it? Why did I say good news of great joy? That's what the angel said in Luke 2. Let's turn there. Luke 2, chapter 10, verses Sorry, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. If you've got a church Bible, I feel like it's a race here. Who can get there first? 
It's on page 1028. Look what the angels proclaimed here to the shepherds. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. It's God's mission. Today, in the town of David, a saviour. It's God's grace. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah. There's his faithfulness to his promise. And he is the Lord. God's faithfulness, grace, his mission, all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do the angels do next? Well, they rejoice. What did the shepherds do after seeing it to be true? They rejoiced. What did the people do in 1 Kings 8 after hearing and seeing this prayer? They rejoiced. There were loads of sacrifices, a great feast for all of Israel in 65 days. Seven days the feast lasted. That is my sort of feast. Seven days of feasting. Imagine that. And then on the eighth day, the new day, the first day of the week, the people in verse 66 are described as saying, they blessed the king and then went home, joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. As we reflect upon the temple, it's a bit abstract, I know, but as you reflect upon how it points to Jesus and his faithfulness, his grace, his mission, it's our response, joyful, glad in heart in Christ. So as we think upon the significance of the temple we read in 1 Kings 8, if we're honest, when Kirstein read it, it's a bit boring. But as we've unpacked it, as you've seen the truth of what it pointed towards, we are pointed to Jesus. The Jesus who fills the heavens and yet dwells in our hearts that we are forever with God. As we think about God's faithfulness, we are steadied amongst the storms of life because Christ is our sure and steady anchor. As we think about God's grace, we have confidence knowing that before the throne of God above, We have a strong and perfect plea. And that no matter how many times we've messed up, we can come to him in our time of need. And as we think about God's mission, we're we're thankful that God saved people like us. What was some backwater part of the Roman Empire at one time. And it spurs us out to go and tell others as we think about Jesus and all that we have in him. Joyful and glad hearts are what that produces. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we have read your word this evening and listened to it, as we have begun to think upon the temple and so begun to think upon you of your amazing faithfulness to us, of your grace towards us, of your mission to the nations. As you think that 
It's amazing that we are included in this. May you cause our hearts to be joyful and to be glad as we respond and sing praise to you. May that happen as we chew upon this throughout the week. May you create in our hearts hearts that are joyful and glad in you. For you do not change. You are the same yesterday, today and forever. And you are our king. And so we bow down and we worship you. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for our joy in you. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song together this evening before the throne of God above. We have a strong and perfect plea. Then please remain standing for our benediction afterwards.